Please leave your Bibles open to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be studying from it this morning as we've been working our way through this letter. The Apostle Paul wrote to this group of believers who are just joining us. The book of Ephesians is a personal letter written from the man who started this church in Ephesus. The church is just a group of believers who are seeking the Lord, and he started this group of believers. He's in jail now. He's writing as a prisoner. He's in jail because he's been fighting for these folks. He's been telling Jewish people that these Ephesian Christians don't have to submit to Jewish law to become Christians. Because of that, Paul has found himself in jail. And he's writing to these people, saying, I'm, I'm here because of truth. I'm here because I love you and I, wanna, I want you to be free. And he's been explaining to these dear Christians how wealthy they are in Christ. He's just wrapped up praying for them in Ephesians 3, and he's moved on now to giving us some instruction. We discovered last week that the Apostle Paul wanted us to put on a worthy walk, and our study was cut a little bit short because your preacher was long-winded. So we're picking up one of those elements here this morning. But before I get into the text, children, it's a long service today, but children, I have a story for you to introduce our sermon. Now this story is going to be for us, but I want the adults to listen in because I think it will help them understand what's going to come next. Can you guys do that with me? Okay? All right, kiddos. It was a few years ago, I was at a children's soccer game. The kids who were playing soccer were probably about six years old. How many of you are six years old? Any six-year-olds? Oh, man, I got some six-year-olds. Yep, it was about six. It was about six for sure. One of the players who was playing, I don't remember his name, so we're going to make up a name. Do you guys like the name Frank? Okay, we're going to call this young man Frank. Frank was playing soccer, and given that there's only one ball in a soccer game, and not everybody can have it at the same time, one of the other players came and stole the ball from Frank. When Frank had the ball stolen from him, children, I'm here to tell you, he got angry. In fact, he turned into the Tasmanian devil, okay? He started, he literally started screaming at the person who took the ball from him. He tried to push that player down. He tried to kick the other player who took the ball from him. The referee blew his whistle and said, Frank, you can't act like that. The coach brought Frank to the sideline and scolded Frank. You can't act like that in a soccer match. And the parents came over, and you know what they told the children? Do you know what Frank's parents told them? They said, you need to calm down. It was an accident. Now, why do you think all of your parents are gasping at that? Because they sized up immediately what I thought. What happens in the event that it's not an accident? Children, if the other player meant to kick you, would that give you the right to act like the Tasmanian devil? Well, you think, surely a child wouldn't think that. Children aren't as advanced and sophisticated as adults. Is that what you thought? 
don't think that, children. Because it wasn't five minutes later, Frank was back in the game. It wasn't five minutes later that Frank had the ball taken from him. And that he acted like the Tasmanian devil. And that his parents brought him over to the sideline and said it was an accident. And you know what Frank said to them? It wasn't on purpose. They did it on purpose. Therefore, I have the right to act like a Tasmanian devil. Well, children, they did not. Frank did not. And we do not. Even when people do on purposes to us. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at. Now, children, you will see how this helps us adults understand this passage. The Apostle Paul is telling us that he wants us to act a certain way to each other. Not because somebody's acted bad or nice to us, but because there's something different about us. The Apostle Paul wants us to act in a certain way toward each other, much like Jesus has acted toward us. So right here in our passage, the Apostle Paul says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And then he's going to go on to explain what that worthy walk looks like. And he tells us uh, that... This worthy walk is characterized by meekness and patience. You might remember last week that this is sort of the overall banner under which we can put everything else. How should we relate to other people? How should we respond to others within a group of believers? Well, Paul says, it should be characterized by meekness and gentleness, control and long-suffering. And Paul says, thirdly, that this gentle walk that we're to have, this gentle walk that we're to put on, this worthy walk that we're to have before others, has an activity. It has an action in it. And that action is zealously guarding our own unity. We need to zealously guard our own wholeness and oneness. And so what we're going to do is work our way through this passage. We've got three basic points. We've got, we're going to talk about the bond of peace. And the points are very simple. simple. The what, the how, and the why. Bond of peace, the what, the how, the why. So what is this bond of peace that the Apostle Paul is talking about here at the end of verse 3 and into verse 4? He says, number one, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the, in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain this Unity, be eager to maintain this in the bond of peace. Eager, this idea of being eager in verse 3 is a present tense attitude. Right now, you need to be eager. And this word, to be eager, has a few different senses. It's not a, a, a word that we would commonly use. It can mean to make every effort. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 21, the Apostle Paul instructs his protege, Timothy, make every effort to come see me while I'm in jail. Spare no expense. Get here if you can. And get here before the winter sets in. And don't forget to bring my books. I need a book. Bring that, please. Make every effort. Be zealous for it. This is an eagerness. Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. There's an energy in this. 
this isn't a, a huffing and puffing of making an effort. There's, a, there's a, a happiness, a joy, a zeal in making this happen. And there's a 2 Peter 3.14, a constant vigilance to this idea of making every effort. He says, eager to maintain. This word eager has the idea of vigilance, eagerness, earnestness. When it comes to our unity, when it comes to our wholeness and oneness, the words that should describe us going to the ends of the earth to have unity and constant vigilance and eagerness. He says that we are to be eager to be keeping. Eager to be keeping. Now, this word, keeping, is used, again, a little bit more differently in the New Testament than we might think of to keep. Of course, when we think keep, we think like when my son Schaefer found some money at Savers the other day. He put it in his pocket and kept it. And no matter how much his father tried to talk him out of giving it back, he wouldn't do it. Or giving it to me, actually. That wasn't <laughs> No, he found it. Finders, keepers, right? Losers, weepers. This word has a little different nuance to it. This word is used as keeping something back as special. In John 2.10, the person who was throwing the wedding banquet praised the family for preserving back the best wine for the end. Maybe some of you are like my lovely wife. When you get a treat from the store, you eat it at the first available opportunity. I prefer to keep my treat for the exact right moment. Perhaps it's while I'm watching a sporting event or when the sun is out and it's warm outside. Just some, there's something in my mind and I'm like, this treat would go perfect with that. And I preserve it for that moment. How many of you are on Team Greg on this one, by the way? Yes! Okay. My wife is nodding, shaking her head. Okay. The rest of you, I presume, are on Team Danielle. And that's okay. We can get along. Okay. This word has the idea of observance, observing and obedience, to keep, as in to formally observe. There's a deportment that we're to maintain. And then there's an idea here of guarding a thing like a prisoner, to guard a thing or to guard a person. This word to keep means to guard, to preserve, to hold back. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. When it comes to your church's unity, zealously, eagerly, constantly guard this thing. Preserve it. Keep it over here. Don't let people mess with it. Observe unity. Practice it. That's the what. That's what Paul that's what the worthy walk looks like. That's what the Apostle Paul is calling us to. Now let's look at the how. How are we going to do that? How do you eagerly, zealously guard or preserve unity? Well, he tells us right here. He says that there is a way to do that, a bond. To maintain, eager to maintain, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The bond of peace is the how. 
What's a, a bond? It's not like a stock or a bond. It's not a financial thing. But this is a word that means to tie together different parts. Okay? This word bond is the word that's used for ligaments. Because ligaments are the bond that hold together a muscle and a bone. Different things being held together with a bond. This is the thing that's used when you chain a prisoner to the prison door or the wall or the whatever. It's the chain, it's the hunk of metal that puts together a person and a thing, chains it together. This is a bond that holds together different parts. And the Apostle Paul is saying that we're all different. In fact, he's going to go on in the book of Ephesians to describe how we're different parts. We're different body parts. We're different people from different backgrounds with different persuasions. Yet, there is a bond that's supposed to hold us all together. I'm different from you, but there's something that holds us both together. And he says that that thing that holds us together is peace. The bond which is peace. Look right here, he says the, the, that we should earnestly maintain the bond of peace. This could be translated, and in fact, you might want to write this in your Bible, write it above where it says, of peace, say, namely peace, or which is peace. The bond, the glue, which is peace. Paul says the glue that holds us together is peace. Now, I want us to stop right here, because this is a very different way of thinking about peace than we think of it. We think of peace as the destination, the outcome, and unity is the thing that gets us there. So, for example, we gather together with people that look like us, that talk like us, that have similar interests, similar age, similar whatever. And when we gather together with enough people that are enough like us, what do we have in the end? Peace. And I want you to know that's exactly backward from the Bible. The Apostle Paul says, when you gather as believers, you're different. The thing that's holding you together is peace. Peace in your attitude, peace is what you're striving for, peace is what you're emanating. Peace holds you together. And the outcome of that is harmony and unity and oneness. We peace, we make peace, we strive for peace. In Greek, this can be a verb to peace. And when you get a bunch of people, a bunch of born-again Christians, seeking peace, then a blessed harmony and unity falls on that body. Again, we come to that backward. We look for sameness, thinking that will conjure peace. When what we need to do is look for peace and let unity be the blossom of that. 
Paul is going to go on here. He's going to tell us seven why statements. Why we should have peace. He tells us to maintain, eagerly, zealously, earnestly, guard, preserve this bond, which is peace. We need to guard that among ourselves. We need to put that on. And then he gives us some whys. Paul's not just going to rant. He's not just going to stick his finger in our face and tell us what to do. He's going to give us some whys. And that's what Daniel read this morning. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And I wanted you to notice in all of those ones, there are seven of them. Seven ones. They are body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, and God. Now, we being Westerners, 21st century Westerners, we don't think much in terms of the significance of numbers. I don't frequently point out in the Bible that this was a particularly significant number or not. But in this case, it is a significant number. In rabbinical tradition, from which Paul got his education, listing seven components of something or listing seven items was an artistic way of communicating fullness or completion. And so by listing seven and limiting himself to seven, because don't you think Paul could have named many more things in this list? By listing seven, he's reinforcing the idea of wholeness and oneness and completeness. I want you to notice also that right here in verse 4, we have the verb, there is. There is one. Now, I can understand why our English translations would want a there is there. Let me read it like it occurs in Greek. Okay, He says in verse 3, uh, zealously maintaining... The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. Now, what would, what would our English, our, our, our seventh grade English grammar teacher tell us that that is? They'd say, that's a sentence fragment. There's no verb. And they would be right. But Paul has a point beyond just following the rules of grammar. He's trying to emphasize one. He puts it right at the head of the sentence. One body. One spirit. One God and Father of all. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One is the idea. And Paul is driving that home and reinforcing it. No main verb. He's leading the thought with one. I want you to notice also, that these one words are a review of everything he's been talking about before. We've already covered one body, one spirit. You were called into, uh, you have one Lord, one faith. There's one God and Father of all. There's, there's one exception in this list of ones that we haven't already covered in the book of Ephesians. And that's the word baptism, one baptism. The Apostle Paul's going to get to describing this a little bit later, but I did want to give you a couple of verses to chase down um, 
after our service sometime this week if you would like to. It's very possible that here when Paul talks about baptism, that he's not referring to what we would think of as the ordinance of baptism. Somebody comes up and gives a testimony, makes a profession, and we dunk them under the water. I think what Paul has in mind is the reality that that baptism symbolizes. In reality, when you have asked Jesus to save you from your sins, according to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, you have been buried with Christ, and you have been raised with Christ. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at. You can look up 1 Corinthians 12, 13 as well. That there is something real that's happened to you. There's an immersion into Christ, a surrounding of Christ. The picture of baptism that we do is a, simply a picture of that reality. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. But he says, one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. This word faith doesn't mean believing. It means more like the content of our faith. There's one cardinal set of doctrines. Christ, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. These are the things that the Apostle Paul is giving. What I want to point out is the effect. By using these words, one, 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 and hitting these big ideas, what the Apostle Paul is doing is raising the awareness of each of us, for each of us, of the principal importance of harmony and unity among us as God's people. Now I want us to remember something very quickly. The Apostle Paul is not condoning a peace outside of doctrine. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul is stipulating right here. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's doctrine. There was a movement back in the 60s. There was a great amount of pressure put on born-again Christians to accept people who didn't adhere to New Testament doctrine and call them brothers just for the sake of unity. They wanted unity while denying the Lord. That's not what Paul is talking about here. This is a call to unity among those people who ascribe to that Lord, who believe in that Lord, who've given their lives to that Lord, who've demonstrated it by coming into a body and serving for that Lord. Here's what I'm getting at. Look around you. The people that you see here are the ones 
that we must be most closely, zealously guarding of those relationships. There has to be a commitment on our part to put on peace such that we can maintain harmonious relationships among ourselves. I have two applications on the screen. I, I want to throw in a third that I meant to put in and forgot to put it in. When we start talking unity in the body, harmony, I would like I would like to encourage us that the number one threat to harmony and unity is interpretation of motives in our own hearts. Okay. There are facts and there are interpretations of facts, aren't there? When we see facts, the easiest thing in all the world is to presume on the motive of the person who's acting. Now, how many of us, don't have to raise your hands, have seen in the course of our lives some facts? And then we we fight with that person in our minds. We argue with that person in their minds. Surely they meant to do this. And then finally, we work up enough courage to go talk to that person, and we find out almost immediately that that was not their intention at all. And then we sort of have to go back mentally and eat those words, don't we? That's what I've found in my own soul is reading into those sorts of motivations creates scar tissue. It's really hard to go back and eat your own words. It's really hard to go back and remember what was right. Our opinion almost always gets affected. When we've read into somebody's motives, even if those motives have been dispelled, the damage in our own soul is done. Does everybody see that? Number two, this will be the first on the screen. The instrument demanding our greatest vigilance is our tongue. If we want to be serious about maintaining, guarding, zealously observing unity and the bond of peace, there's one tool that we have to guard most carefully, and that's our tongue. Proverbs 12.18 says this, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings me. Now, friends, I have a question for you. How long, how long does it take to thrust a sword? 
how long does it take to heal when that sword strikes you? Can I give an illustration? I'm not offended anymore, okay? This is circa 1988. I'm fourth grade Greg. Okay? I still remember the girl who said it. I won't say her name. I walked into the classroom, and I heard this young lady say, now, hold on, before I go this, she was speaking the truth, okay? She said, Greg Baker has a big head. Well, I don't know if she meant, like, actually, or I was proud. Both were true, okay? <laughs> I'm 43 years old, and I remember what that young lady said way back then. It's fine, I, but I remember. How long does it take to thrust the sword? And how long does it take the person who was struck to heal? We have to guard our tongues. Third application, and last on our list here. Peace tends to disappear in the presence of other agendas. Okay, let me, let me revisit what we've talked about before. Paul says that we need to guard unity in the bond of peace. We guard unity with the bond, this thing that holds us together, which is peace. You remember we noted how we typically get it backward. We seek unity, hoping that peace will come, when what we need to do is seek peace and then let harmony come. If I could illustrate this just a few different ways so that we can see it. I want you to imagine a husband and wife coming for marriage counseling. One wants an apology and for their spouse to grovel at their feet. And the other wants vindication. They've got agendas. And you know what they can never have? It's peace. Or you have one who comes. I am so ready to forgive. I, I, I want this to be over. I want to get back to the way we were. But the other wants freedom. Can they have peace? takes both coming to say what I really want. I, I have already forgiven. I want wholeness. I want an embrace and I want two embers. Or there's a, a group of Christian dads. One dad wants 
his child to succeed beyond all the rest. That becomes the thing he's striving for. He might get that. He's got that agenda, but do you know what he won't have? He won't have peace. I could go on and on, ladies comparing themselves to each other. That is an agenda other than peace. But when the attitude is, God has so freely forgiven me of all my sins. He so freely gave me Christ and now I'm at peace with Him and all I want with these people is to show the peace of God to her and to Him and to them. When that happens, and you get a whole bunch of people doing that simultaneously, the result is a blessed So I would invite you to think about your heart and see what other agendas might be lying in there pushing peace aside. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to maintain unity in the bond of peace, to be eager and zealous about seeking May we put on this heart of peace that you have so plainly modeled for us. And may what results be harmony and unity. Or may we look to you as the person who showed us peace first and then seek to display that to others out of a heart of genuine. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Well, at this time, Nathan is going to come lead us in another song. We're going to observe the Lord's table immediately after that. And if you didn't build that into your schedule, uh, we totally understand. If you need to slip out the back, uh, that's, that's fine by us. Uh, I, I think I say this every month. No buzzers will go off. Nobody will, will go, <gasps> you've left. Um, but if you want to join us to observe the Lord's table, I think we take Maybe 10 minutes, maybe a little more, a little less. Somewhere around in there. We observe the, observe the Lord's table together. We'd love to have you stay. And if you're a person who's called on the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, the table is open for you. Okay? And we would love for you to stick around with us and observe that. But, like I said, if, if I'm ruining some um, plans in your life, feel free to slip out. It's, it's really not a worry. But, if, but you will have that opportunity when Nathan leaves. So Nathan, please come and lead us in some.